1973, after much coming and going, an athletic striker from Amsterdam was sold to a club of underachieving Catalans on the Mediterranean. At the time, 50 years ago almost to the day, Amsterdam was a font of progressive ideas in culture and politics as well as football. By contrast, the Catalans were locked in a long argument with Madrid. It made them testy and backward-looking. They behaved like victims. The striker, who had won three consecutive European Cups, changed all that. He changed it as a player and, later, he changed it as a coach. It is fair and accurate to say that the football club to which he was sold for a then-record fee would never be quite the same again. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. Doing football business in Europe in 1973 was challenging. Some countries were outward-looking, economically speaking, while others were economically introverted, possessing a siege mentality. Some countries were democracies, others dictatorships. Some were members of the European Economic Community, the forerunner of the European Union, while others were sniffy at the very notion of pan-European economic unity. They looked skeptically at the notion, smiled inwardly, and went back to dipping chunks of bread in their gazpacho. There was no unified European football calendar either, which meant that, say, the transfer window in a North European country closed in July, while it remained open for a month longer in, say, a Mediterranean country. This made doing transfer business tricky, and made the process of registering a player trickier still. What also made doing business tricky was either an actual or a kind of implicit protectionism, in European leagues. This impacted upon all but a few handful of European football superstars. Having the Belfast-born Northern Irishman George Best playing his football for Manchester United in England was one thing, but having an Italian playing in France or a German in Spain was quite another. Whether by legislation or more informal means, most European football leagues were a closed shop to outsiders. Barcelona's then-coach, the Dutchman, Rinus Michels, was casting about for a striker in 1973 and, as it happens, he wanted a German. This was Bayern Munich's Gerd Müller, better known by his nickname, Der Bomber, for his predatory instincts in the small box. The problem was that others at Barcelona wanted a lithe, long-haired striker from Amsterdam, historically the most outward-facing of European cities. Here was the baseball-playing son of a single mother whose father had died when he was 12. He was gifted, as good with his not-so-good left foot as he was with his right, and had an opinion of himself that was never as low as the low country from which he came. Being Dutch, he also had definite ideas about how the game should be played, such views deepened and, by the time the player became a coach, he had come to fetishize the pass, which, he said, should always be played a meter in front of a player. He was a forward-looking guy, you see, so forward-looking that his coaching philosophy and can-do mentality 
became part of the forward-looking approach to football of the club he was about to join. Said player's name was, of course, Johan Kreef, and he and a generation of gifted players had made Ajax Amsterdam the most successful club team in the world. Ajax won the European Cup in three consecutive seasons in the early 1970s, beating Panathinaikos, Inter Milan and Juventus in the finals before the baton was passed to Müller's Munich, who won the title for three consecutive years after that. As with all weddings, Kreif and Barcelona brought with it a retinue of complications long before anyone could raise their glasses and throw the confetti. What wasn't in doubt was his desire to move. Towards the end of his Ajax tenure, he wasn't the team's Romanian's coach, Stefan Kovacs's best man. In his autobiography, he also tells of his disappointment that the Ajax players voted for Pitt Kayser to succeed him as new club captain after Ajax's third European Cup final victory. Understanding the news about his loss of the captaincy as a betrayal, he made up his mind to move. The Ajax hierarchy, however, had ideas of their own. They wanted to sell Cruyff to Barcelona's rivals, Real Madrid, and were under the impression that a deal had been concluded. Upon hearing this, Cruyff, who was not only gifted but headstrong, came close to leaving in a strop, but he didn't. He stayed. The decision was not the Ajax bosses to make, he said, and anyway, he liked Catalonia and would be happy to move to Barcelona because Michels and Vic Buckingham, his former coaches at Ajax, were now there too. When it transpired that Müller wasn't for sale, Barcelona approached him, he continued. He had given them his word. If the Ajax bosses didn't agree, he would simply retire. And anyway, he'd holidayed in Barcelona. He had young daughters. Son Jordi was born in 1974 and liked the idea of moving his family from Amsterdam to Barcelona. Although, yes, he had to admit, it was inconvenient that he had just signed a new seven-year deal with Ajax. But, you know, he could wriggle free of that. Besides, the choice of club to whom he was sold was not his Ajax bosses to make. Finally, in August 1973, after much toing and froing, Kreif was transferred from Ajax Amsterdam to Barcelona, the most glamorous football transfer of the early 1970s. His move was a chapter in the growing, and by now extremely thick, book of Real Madrid versus Barcelona. The battle played itself out on the pitch, in the transfer market, on the stands, in the newspapers and on television. There was no theatre into which the war didn't bleed. At the time, Barcelona were perennially underachieving. Both the city and the club lived under Madrid's long and rather deep shadow. Spain's fascist dictator, Francisco Franco, lived in Madrid and supported Real Madrid. During the Spanish Civil War, the headquarters of the Workers' Party of Marxist Unification, under the acronym of PUM, was at the Hotel Tivoli in Barcelona, fighting against Franco's nationalists not only in the city but up in the mountains, was often fierce. Often, however, the fighting wasn't fierce at all. In Homage to Catalonia, George Orwell's book about the Spanish Civil War, 
he writes about the mind-bending boredom of the conflict, the endless cadging of cigarettes, the constant cold and hunger, and the disgusting reek of the outdoor latrines. He's also mordantly funny. At one point, Franco's nationalists and the anti-Stalinist communist forces of whom are facing each other across a deep valley. There is nothing to do but hurl insults at each other across the vast emptiness. It is too far to get off an accurate shot, and heavy artillery can't be dragged up the mountain. One of Orwell's colleagues has a megaphone, which he puts to good use. He knows that the nationalists, like Poom, are cold and hungry, so shouts into the loud hailer, quote, And do you know what we are eating now? You'll never guess. We are tucking into slices of hot buttered toast. The Catalans of Barcelona were proud. They saw themselves as culturally and linguistically different. But pride invariably masks something, doesn't it? The city's inhabitants and the supporters of Barcelona Football Club also wore their inferiority like a curse. Although Barcelona had won the inaugural La Liga title in 1929, and the 1950s were generally a good decade for the club, they hadn't won a La Liga title since winning the eighth of their titles in 1960. When Cruyff arrived, they had never won a European Cup, while teams like Glasgow Celtic, Feyenoord and Benfica had. As far as Cruyff's transfer was concerned, it wasn't quite over. Such was the trickiness of doing football business between the Netherlands in Spain in 1973 that the paperwork accompanying his transfer to Catalonia categorized him as, quote, farming machinery. Question is, was he a combine harvester or a tractor? Perhaps he was just a know-it-all machine. The Royal Dutch Football Association, or the KNVB, meanwhile, operated a Byzantine machinery of their own. According to Kreef's autobiography, he was finally sold to Barcelona after the closure of the Dutch transfer window at the end of July, which displeased the Dutch association. While the association wrung their hands, Kreef chomped at the bit. Without final clearance, he couldn't play in competitive Barcelona fixtures. The league season started at the beginning of September, and it now seemed likely that he would miss it. What if Kreef played in a few friendlies? just so he could remain fit. The governing body for Dutch football didn't much like the idea of Kreef playing in Barcelona friendlies either, and, again, failed to grant clearance. Barcelona were miffed. Kreef frustrated. The fans felt short-changed. How many more hidden terms and conditions could the deal carry? Suddenly, a thought. The Netherlands were playing a crucial World Cup qualifier against Belgium, in November 1973. The new Barcelona man let the association know that there was no ways that he could be called up for the Belgium game if he wasn't fit. Did they want to lose him, the team's talisman? Perhaps they should stop wringing their hands and someone in the machinery should rubber stamp his clearance. If they didn't want to allow him to play for the Barcelona team for which he was intended, could he not, at least, play for the reserves? Kreef made his second team debut against Circle Bruges in a 6-0 Barcelona victory three days after the first team lost their opening match in that season's La Liga in early September. 
He continued to play friendlies on the winning side through September and October. Fans flocked to watch him. Barcelona recouped the money they paid Ajax for him. Other than the fact that the first team lost three of their first five matches at the start of the season, winning against Espanyol and drawing with Racing Santander, things were beginning to look up. The Crave effect appeared to be working to good effect off the second team pitch too. In Barcelona's sixth league match of the season, they drew 0-0 at home to Real Madrid, the team against whom they often displayed their long-standing renown for inferiority. Five days later, they beat Castellon 2-0 away to record their second victory of the season. They were lost in the bottom half of the table, but everyone was looking forward to Kreif's first team debut at the end of October. Freed by the KNVB, freed by Ajax, freed from dutifully entertaining those who had turned out to support the Barcelona second team, Kreif was a free man. Against Granada on debut, he came out of his months-long twilight zone and scored two goals. Barcelona won 4-0. They were up and running. And what a run it was. In early December, they banged five goals past Sporting Gijon, following it up a week later by slamming four past Malaga. At the end of January in early 1974, they scored a 5-2 victory over Celta Vigo. Although they were held to a 0-0 draw away to city rivals Espanyol a week after that, they now hadn't lost since the end of September, when the Flying Dutchman had made his debut against Granada, they were in 17th spot. Now they were top and had a return fixture against Real Madrid to look forward to. Kreef's debut season is best remembered for Barcelona's 5-0 away victory against Real Madrid at the Santiago Bernabeu. Michels has suggested that Kreef play a withdrawn role and with Madrid's back four favouring zonal rather than man-marking, Kreif threw their best laid defensive plans off kilter. In the space he vacated by his withdrawal, Barcelona's midfielders plunged. But this is only half the story. By his withdrawal, Kreif allowed himself more time, space in which to roam. Barcelona's fourth goal, for example, showed him in his new incarnation as attacking midfielder, spraying a 40 metres pass upfield to one of Barcelona's forwards, a pass that ultimately led to a goal. The victory over Real Madrid has a charming coda. Kreif and his wife, Danny's son, was born in the same month as the 5-0 victory. Soon, Johan was off to have the child registered with the name of Jordi, Catalan for George, Saint George being the patron saint of Catalonia. Kreif was promptly told that no, this would not be possible. Jordi was a Catalan name and, under edict from Franco's Madrid, the name was outlawed as an expression of Catalan national identity. Kreif was fleet-footed at the best of times, but now he drew a line in the sand, a line behind which, no surprises here, he dug in his heels. He told the bureaucrat that no, the suggested alternative wasn't acceptable. He didn't want to call his son Jorge. The two looked at each other for a long moment, each standing either side of the halfway line. Eventually, Kreif put forward a proposition. 
it didn't matter what was decided in far-off Madrid. Geordie's birth certificate, stamped in Amsterdam, trumped everything. Geordie was the boy's name. Were the bureaucrats going to argue with a birth certificate? And so Geordie Kreef became the first Geordie to be registered in Barcelona for two generations. Kreefer said subsequently that despite the first stellar season at Barcelona, there was often something slightly wrong with his later time there as a player. It was as if he were playing with a perpetual niggle, and he didn't always trust the higher-ups. When Michels and his Inspector Clouseau-type trench coat left for America in May 1975, it was a dark day for Kreef. They had a complicated relationship. In his autobiography, for example, Kreef writes about Michels' strange combination of strictness and tenderness. Michels sometimes used to massage Kreef's legs, but they were familiar and knew each other very well. Above all else, they went back to Kreef's early days in the Ajax first team in the mid-1960s. They trusted one another. Kreef's autobiography even tells the anecdote of Michels dressing up as Father Christmas when the family was in Barcelona, only for Michels to be recognized by Kreef's young daughter. Michels was replaced by the German Hennes Weisweiler, who lasted less than a year at the club, but it was the foreshadowing of the end, maybe more. Weisweiler's arrival at the club was not the only thing to go wrong for the man who had been categorized as farming machinery. Maybe the farming theme was in the back of his mind, because in the twilight of his stay at Barcelona, Kreef invested in a pig-breeding farm. When his father-in-law, an Amsterdam diamond dealer called Cor Costa, asked him for the title deeds to the land in which he had invested, Johann simply shrugged and told him that there was nothing of the kind. His father-in-law was furious. He was too gullible and preoccupied to read the fine print. Kreef had been swindled out of a significant amount of money. Some in Kreef's retinue had been telling him porkers. Kreef's time as a player at Barcelona was further soured because, when it was finally confirmed that he was moving on, he was told that he would have to pay his taxes retroactively. It was customary for the club to deal with the player's taxes, but he was moving on, and the club's higher-ups decided to saddle him with his tax bills. Kreef says he didn't know what the amount consisted of because he tended to leave financial matters to Costa, but he remembers reading in the newspaper that it amounted to millions. The Kreefs also lost their apartment in the city centre. By 1978, after five years at Barcelona, it was time to move on. It took 10 years for Kreef to return to Barcelona as a coach, which he did in 1988. There are many ways to measure his contribution, but one of them might be to count what found its way into the trophy cabinet. Before he arrived as coach, home attendances were falling and the club was indebted. Morale was low. Under him, they won four La Liga titles in succession, culminating in them finally taking their first European Cup when they beat Sampdoria 1-0 at Wembley in 1992. Another way to look at the Kreef legacy is to unravel what he did in cultural terms, if by culture we mean a way of going about things allied to a vision of the world. The first thing to note here, 
and personally I find this rather charming, is that Kreif inculcated a culture at Barcelona which allowed the players the freedom to fail. Quote, I'm never afraid of making mistakes, and I tried to bring that idea to the pitch, Kreif said. I told the players not to be afraid. If you have an idea, good, try it, and if it goes wrong, don't worry. Many give the teams they coach the confidence to succeed. Very few give the teams they coach the confidence to fail. This was done, remember, in the context of Barcelona's long-standing victim complex in relation to Madrid, what Kreif called their Madriditis. With him as both player and coach, there would be none of that. They would believe. They would try things and fail. They would enjoy themselves. There is something extremely compelling in all of this. I'm sure you'll agree. Let's not forget that Kreif had something to give because he'd had a long time to think before he became Barcelona manager in 1988. He had, after all, retired at a young age, 31. There were many old matches to play again in his head, like the World Cup final Holland lost to West Germany in 1974, a tournament in which they also beat Argentina 4-0 and Brazil 2-0, and there were many new ones to play in his head as Barcelona coach too. Another way to look at his contribution to Barcelona as a coach is to note who thrived under him, who he encouraged the club to keep, Lionel Messi, anyone, and who he quickly noticed should change position. In the summer of 1989, for example, Kreif gave a first-team debut to an anxious 18-year-old in a pre-season friendly against third division Banyols. The youngster made less of an impression than he would have liked and was yanked off at half-time. Kreif told him, quote, You were slower than my granny, according to an article by Donald McRae in The Guardian seven years ago. It took the youngster another 19 months to make his first-team debut, but before long he had become a regular. As a youngster, he had been moved inside from his position wide on the right-hand side of midfield, and he went on to become a crucial cog in the first of Barcelona's four consecutive La Liga titles in the period. Ah, his name, you were asking. Haven't you already guessed? Pep Guardiola. Guardiola has never been shy of publicizing his indebtedness to Kreif, the player who refused to go to Real Madrid because nobody at Ajax had bothered to ask him if he wanted to be sold to them. Others have done so too, and many, whether their names are Frank Reichardt or Luis Enrique, have come under the Kreif spell. Less well-known, perhaps, is the influence Kreif would have had on the Barcelona women's team, many of whom were in the Spain squad that beat England in the Women's World Cup final in Australasia a week ago. Kreif's influence is deep and wide, all the more so because, while he was serious about football, he never forgot that crucial ingredient, romance. And the world loves him for it. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. 
You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I release a new episode every Saturday at 10.30 a.m.